0: Hello and welcome everyone to this week's edition of Novak Now on the Nachum Steagle Network. I'm Jake Novak, and you can always follow me on Twitter at jakejakeny is my Twitter handle. That's the best way to follow all the, the, the news that just keeps breaking by the hour. I feel almost guilty putting anything down on tape or recording or whatever you want to call on it post- for digital posterity because things change so quickly uh, with the, the major stories that have been going on, not the least of which the... The changes since election night in Israel last week. Uh, First of all, I want to thank everyone who who tuned in, especially those who commented on the Nachum Siegel uh, app comment page during our live coverage that went four hours. We went from 3 p.m. to 7 p.m. Monday uh, election afternoon into election night New York time. Of course, it was all election night Israel time. And as we were going through that four hour period, some of the things that we were talking about are most of it are still true. There were some slight (laughs) changes as things happen with the counting of the votes. Israel, by the way, is counting their votes despite the fact that they have much fewer votes to count than the United States does. They're going about it much slower the last few election cycles for a number of security reasons. So it it takes more than a day to get the, I guess, six million votes or so or something like that votes counted. The the problem is uh, that something's changed during that period. So it is still... It was still a big victory in, in a lot of ways for Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister Netanyahu, because it was a bigger majority and seat advantage over Blue and White, the second highest ranking party in the election results, than he got in April. And if you remember, in the September election, Likud and Benjamin Netanyahu's party, Likud finished one seat behind Blue and White. So for them to finish three, four seats ahead, I think it ended up being three seats or four seats, this time was their biggest Margin of victory, and to me, that was a big sign that the Israeli public clearly isn't abandoning Net- Netanyahu because the support has grown since last April, and also that the support for Blue and White is just not there. The problem is, whereas it looked like the right wing block, without Avigdor Lieberman's Israel Beitenu party, party was going to come into co- end the election with sixty seats and only needing one person to defect over to their party, now they need three because it's fifty eight for Lili Kud right wing block. Uh, I'm not even going to do the whole 55 seat allocation for the left wing block because that includes the Arab parties who will not join in a government. So if the left wing is somehow able to form a government, it would be called a minority government where they would still basically not be able to pass anything. Uh, They would be able to put ministers and it would be a big mess. And there are members of blue and white, not not a few members of blue and white, a, a good handful of them who have said they won't want to be a part of a minority government. It's one thing for them to join a party whose entire raison d'etre is to attack and to de-office, de, you know, de put out of office, dethrone, for lack of a better term, Benjamin Netanyahu. It's another thing to get into a de facto coalition with Arab parties, many of many of whom have members that aren't really supportive of even the idea of the state of Israel. Some do. Some are, are willing to accept that. So I don't want to say all, all are. But that's a bridge too far for a number of members of Blue and White, especially those who came over from Likud over the years. So we're still kind of in that limbo. Avigdor Lieberman is still playing this juggling act because he did come away with seven seats, which I think was one more seat than the Likud bloc really needed them to have for them to be able to 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 work without Lieberman. So it's still a Lieberman limbo government. Uh, I, I I hope that we get two or three members of the Blue and White party to to defect because when that happens, I think maybe one or two members from some other area will also go over to Likud. It may mean they may not need the three, all three from the Blue and White Party. Right now, the Likud right wing block needs three defectors uh, or more, but they need at least three. And uh, if two come from Blue and White, and then one comes from maybe Labor, which is possible, even though they're so far to the left, uh, because they don't want to have a fourth election, we'll have to see. But I, I, I have a gut feeling that they will resolve this somehow in some kind of a coalition. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. Um, but this all comes as Nita- Netanyahu's trial begins later this month. So it, it, it's, it's still very much a lot of questions... We were really hoping for some of these questions to be resolved Monday night. At one point, it looked like that it was going to happen. But again, I I think what is unquestionable is that the majority of the Israeli people want a right, center-right government. They do not want a blue and white. The majority of Israelis do not want a blue and white-led government. And that has been the result of of all three elections, by the way. All three elections, even though Likud has had different results in all three of those elections, good results in April, better results this time, and not so great results in September. But still, the the overall right-wing block, without Lieberman, but if you include Lieberman, is still w- clearly the, the majority of the country. So this pantomime that Blue and White keeps doing, pretending that there's some kind of difference in policy, there's no difference in policy. It's just a question of whether the people are okay with with Prime Minister Netanyahu going for another three, four years, depending on how how long this next government would last once it's formed. And clearly the, the Israeli people, a strong majority of them are okay with it. They may, I'm not saying they, a, a strong majority of Israelis love or even like Benjamin Netanyahu, but I think they like the overall results of his governments that he's led since 2009. So I think that that is more than clear, and it's just dishonest for Blue and White to... to pretend like there's some kind of groundswell of support for a change at the top i think that there's a groundswell among some right-wing voters in israel israel beitenu to to try something different and 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 maybe get someone representing the russian immigrant community a little bit differently than the than, than the way they see they've been represented but um that's one big change since last week second big change here in the united states massive change is we were going into uh, maybe 10 days ago. I wouldn't say it was a week ago, because by a week ago, Joe Biden had already won the South Carolina primary. And was starting to look like he was recovering a little bit in his quest for the Democratic presidential nomination. But Tuesday night, Joe Biden did better than expected. And he was expected to do well in the few days leading up to his polls. And now he has the lead in the delegate count. He has a tremendous momentum to the Democratic National uh, co- Convention. And and uh, you, you would ex- expect him now to get the nomination if these trends hold up. And a couple of things happened that made that possible. First of all, there was clearly tremendous pressure from the leadership of the Democratic National, Par- uh, National Leadership to get some of the other candidates out of the race so that anybody diminishing some of Joe Biden's vote, tolders, vote totals would get out of the way. So Pete Buttigieg dropped out, Amy Klobuchar dropped out, and then Mike Bloomberg dropped out. All three of them dropped out right before Super Tuesday. And that gave, well, actually, Mike Bloomberg dropped out right after Super Tuesday but of course, as I had predicted, and, and I'm sure I'm not alone, a lot, the day he announced for president, I, I did not expect Mike Bloomberg to make any kind of major impact vote-wise. I mean, he'll make a financial impact, that's for sure. But vote-wise in the Democratic primary race, and that, that was, to me, very crystal, crystal clear when he announced. And sure enough, that's what happened. He dropped out on Wednesday. But Buttigieg and Klobuchar dropped out. That really helped Biden. But more importantly, it was very, very clear the establishment of the Democratic Party uh, supporting him and nominating him and endorsing him was huge for Biden. And most importantly of all, most importantly of all, the younger voters who have shown so much support for Bernie Sanders on social media and at rallies, they didn't show up to vote. The voter turnout numbers for younger voters in, on the, in the Super Tuesday primaries across the board were pathetic. And I was just talking with my 16-year-old daughter about it, who's not a Bernie supporter, but she is very um, connected and tuned into a lot of her friends who are even younger than voting age, but some of her friends who are voting age, who spend a lot of time supporting Bernie Sanders and his message and all that on social media. And... I was making the point, and she seemed to agree, even though you know, she's only 16. She, I, I said, teenagers and young people, especially the, the young people who are, even the young people who are old enough to vote, are doing so many things online right now. Their entire lives are online. The way they get food, the way they talk to people, the way they get entertainment, the way they do their homework, the way they do their regular work, online, online, online. One thing they can't do online is vote, and I think that's a big reason why voter turnout among younger people was worse than expected. Now, it's always been weak. But we had been led to believe over the last few election cycles, I had seen the numbers myself, we had started to see a little bit better voter turnout rates among the 18 to 25 group. That's always been the group that, that's been easy for me to remember, because it's 18 to 25, and if you focus on that 25 number, that's usually been the turnout rate, percentage rate. About 25% to 30% of eligible voters between 18 and 25 typically vote in elections, in national, like presidential elections, in primaries, even in, even in midterm elections. And what we had seen since 2008 is a general rise in that. Now, 2008 was the big outlier. There was a tremendous amount of voter, younger voters who came out and voted for Barack Obama. And I have some thoughts about that. I think part of that was the whole transformational aspect of the Obama campaign, this first African-American candidate who looked like he had a shot to win. And, and after September 15th, it was very clear he was going to win. So a lot of young people got involved in that. But also remember what, what the huge issue going into that election was, it wasn't just the economy, it was also the Iraq War. And we do, we're dealing with a lot of young people who didn't want to go off to the Iraq War, even though we don't have a draft. It was younger people in this country who really knew more people who had been hurt in that war than older folks. That was, a, you know, listen, that's what happens in wars, right? So I think that that had a lot to do with it as well. And ever since then, it hasn't been as strong a young voter turnout. The uh, the young people who came out to vote for Obama in 2008 didn't come back in the same strong numbers in 2012. Uh, but they did vote in decent numbers in the 2018 midterm elections. So go figure. I, I, I mean, there's probably a lot of explanations to this that people will write PhD dissertations about. But one of the biggest reasons why Bernie Sanders is in this position right now where he looks like momentum is so much against him right now for the Democratic nomination when, t- when it, it felt like 10, 15 days ago, it was the other way around. I certainly saw it that way. But when those other candidates suddenly dropped out all of a sudden, and when the Democratic top-level establishment types all came out much more strongly for Biden than they had before, and the young people didn't show up to vote for whatever reason, that really spelled doom for Bernie Sanders. And there were just some states that he had to win on Tuesday that he didn't win. Now he squeaked it out in California, which was the biggest prize. But Bernie Sanders was way ahead in all the polls in Texas until three or four days before the primaries, when those polls changed in Texas and he lost Texas. He needed to win that, and he didn't get it. And he did not do very well in states like Virginia, which always was kind of leading towards Biden anyway. With all those federal workers and establishment type Democrats going to be very alluring to the Democrat voters in that state, but. Things have changed even uh, again since then, because what's happened in the last three days or four or five days since Super Tuesday, is there's now been a renewed focus on Joe Biden's performance as a candidate on the campaign trail. Now, this is something I've been writing about for years, that Joe Biden, when he gets out on the trail and voters get a better chance to look at him, and you can see this on, in more than one of my CNBC columns. If you go on Google and write Jake Novak, CNBC, Joe Biden, and you'll see all the Biden columns I've written over the years. I think the first one I wrote about him was in 2015, but I've written two or three since then. And either the main point of those columns or a a side point has been in, in, in the history of Joe Biden, when voters really look at the man, he turns them off. They like him on paper. On paper, he's always looked a little bit better than he does in person. And now you've had over the last 72 to 96 hours, if you're listening on Monday, you've had a renewed focus on Joe Biden, who's not only not as alluring as a candidate, but he's starting to look more like an older man. I mean, the man is 77 years old, and he does not seem anywhere near as sharp as Sanders or President Trump does, and both of them are are within that age range. I guess President Trump is about 74, right? And Bernie Sanders is 78. Both of them seem leaps and bounds mentally sharper than Joe Biden right now. And both Sanders and Trump, who when they make campaign appearances, usually are on stage for well over an hour. I mean, the typical Trump rally speech is 90 minutes. Think of that. I mean, he goes 90 minutes with that energy, and you may hate every word he says. Uh, Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network is not oblivious to the fact that there are so many people who have visceral dislike of everything Donald Trump says. But even if you have a visceral dislike for everything Donald Trump says, he's there. I mean, he's present in the moment. He's not fumfering around trying to figure out what his next words are. You may not like what those next words are, but he's clearly in command of the message he's trying to make however much you dislike it however much you, you dislike the style of it. And I would say the same of Bernie Sanders. I don't like much of what Bernie Sanders says. I don't like most of what Bernie Sanders says. But there's never a doubt in my mind when he's up there talking. He doesn't, he doesn't fumfer around. I mean, he looks like he could. I mean, he, he's, he, you know, he, he, someone told me that he messes up his hair on purpose before he goes out on stage. I believe all that the way he comes out there. I mean, you would have to work on it to look that way. But he doesn't look like he's lost. He never looks like he's deer in the headlights out there. But Joe Biden does, and Joe Biden only talks for 10, 12, sometimes even only seven minutes. Some of his campaign appearances over, la- over this past weekend, he was only speaking for 12 minutes. I mean, imagine going to some of these rallies, and sometimes it's cold, and you're standing outside, and your candidate only talks for 12 minutes. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm a huge fan of short speeches, but I'm also not a fan of these long rallies where you've got to stand out there forever and wait, and wait for the candidate to show up or the main event, the main speaker. So if you're out there waiting for hours or however long it is, or if you're out there in the cold, I mean, I I think you need to speak for more than 10, minutes or whatever how long Joe Biden's been speaking. And even in that short span span of time, he's making one gaffe after the next. There's this false story going around that Joe Biden's been struggling with the stutter all, all his life. And I say it's a false story. I'm not saying, listen, maybe he did have some kind of a stutter as a child. But to say that he's struggled with it his whole life is not true. I have yet to see a video of Joe Biden that is more than five years old that shows any stuttering or fumfering around. You know, he's always said stuff that was controversial and annoying to some people, to some people. I'm not saying everyone's been annoyed by the things he said. But if you take a look at the videos of him as a senator, and even in his years as vice president, he's clearly sharper than he is today. I mean, these videos of him from 10 years ago and so are, are clearly a different man. And people who have worked for Biden have said so on Twitter in the last few days. So that's another issue that's just popped up. I mean, we've had so much, we've had a real metamorphosis just since the last edition of Novak Now here on the Malcolm Siegel Network, right? I mean, a week ago, Sanders still kind of had the edge for the Democratic nomination. A week ago, we thought that, you know, Netanyahu and, and the Likud government had Basically, we're just inches away from clinching a coalition, and now they're going to need a little bit more help, even though they, they clearly are the, still the more popular party in Israel. And Joe Biden's gone from second place to first place with a lot of momentum, and also now a question about his cognitive abilities. So now, will that help Bernie Sanders? I don't know. I don't know if a bunch of people worried about Joe Biden's cognitive abilities are going to start rushing over to Bernie Sanders. The Democratic Party establishment has made a very strong case now that that most it apparently seemed most Democrat primary voters have accepted that that sanders can 't beat Trump no way, and that Biden has a chance so they might all switch they might as well all switch over to him and for some reason, young voters are not willing to stand up for Bernie um, again I, I think that there are a lot of reasons for that, not the least of which being. That it's a lot easier to, to to chat online and to text and to do snaps and TikToks and all that kind of stuff than it is to stand online for and vote. You got to get up in the morning and do that. And I know they keep the polls open till late, but you know it's it's you got to get out of your you got to get out of your room and you got to walk and do something. And young kids don't always do that. Par- those of you who are like me and our parents of teenagers know what I'm talking about. I have two kids who are, do great in school and they're and they're fantastic kids, but getting them up and out sometimes is difficult. Getting my kids up and out to shoal is extremely difficult. (laughs) Okay. That to me is like they get out to school much easier. I mean, it's not easy. And we can all laugh about that for a second, but understand that's what you're asking kids to do that on on their own. I don't know too many parents who wake their kids up and drag them to the polls to vote. I mean, maybe there are, but to me, that's kind of, you know, that's not something I've heard from people of my age who have voting age kids. So, all those things have really, really changed just in the last few days, right? I mean, these are these are things that are really, really changing quickly. And I almost, I almost feel guilty putting this on tape right now, putting this edition of Novak Now on tape, on on the digital archive, whatever you want to call it, because I feel like in 12 hours, let alone 24 hours, let alone 48 hours or, or more, things are going to change radically. So this is where we are right now on Monday, you know, March 9th, and, and, and that's where we have to really think about it. But the biggest story of them all is one I have not even touched on. And the biggest story of all, and you know what I'm about to talk about, and that is this coronavirus scare that's, that's really, really spreading in, in more ways than one across the world. And I want to say some things about that first and foremost. First of all, I'm not going to give you medical advice. I'm not going to give you advice about avoiding it from a medical standpoint because I'm not a doctor. And one of the things I learned, and this is a very important story I want to pass on to everyone here because I think that there are a lot of listeners here on the Nachum Segal Network who may know what I'm talking about here, who may be of a certain age that they remember this. I got into the news business, the television news business, in the mid-90s. 1994 and 95 is when I started. And that was a period, I started in local news. Which, by the way, if you have kids who are interested in getting into television news or things like that, I would often I would encourage them to start at the local news level because you can be in charge of a show very early on, you know, of an hour of programming or even more very early on in your career if you start out local in a smaller market. It's also good to learn about this country a little bit and get out to some of the smaller cities and things like that where you can really hone your craft and learn something about something other than New York, Los Angeles, and, and Washington D.C. So, but when I was starting out in local news there was a real trend on reporting about breast cancer and when women and how often women should get tested for breast cancer mammograms and during the course of my first few years in local news this would be end of 94 going into late early 1997 so that was about 3 it was about it was about 2 years in change it was it felt like 3 years about that I was doing local news outside of new york city I kid you not, there were about four or five different official directives to women about when they should get mammograms, what age, how often, that were completely different than the one before. They kept changing their mind about this. And when I say they, I'm saying some of it was like stuff that you would see in New England Journal of Medicine, or something that would come out of the Department of Health and Human Services, so from the government. It it was differing opinions that were coming out a year apart, or sometimes even six months apart. And I remember, even though I was very young, I mean, I was 25 years old or something, and sitting down with my anchor people and some of my reporters and other people in the newsroom and saying, look, folks, nobody here is a doctor. And we're not even medically qualified enough to decide which doctor is better to talk to about this issue. The fact is, we should stop reporting this. We're confusing the viewers. We might actually be threatening the lives of a viewer or two by putting out all this different information that's right or wrong, if we ever get a story like this, we might want to say, you know, ask your own doctor, we can do that, but not give them much other information, because it's, 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 it's harmful. So in, that's a lesson that I learned early, I hope it was the right lesson, and it's a continuing lesson that I'm applying now to this coronavirus scare. I am not a rabbi, and I'm not playing one on, tel- on radio, and I'm not a doctor, and I'm not going to play one on radio. So I will not be offering any advice about how often to wash your hands or what food to stock up on or whatever else he, or whether or not you should wear a mask that is not my purview and I think there are better people to ask about that and I would I urge you to do so not to take it off the internet ask a doctor or a medical professional that you trust about all these things. What I want to talk about though is what it seems to me to be the the, the geopolitical aspect of all of this. Now the medical experts that I speak to have, there's been a lot of different opinions about a lot of different things, but one of the things that almost everyone agrees about, about is that yes, this is a virus that's going to spread. We're going to get a lot more cases. There's universal agreement on that. We're going to see a lot more cases of people with coronavirus. That is not disputed by anybody. And that is every country in the world. Okay. Not disputed, and you don't need to be a doctor, and I don't feel, I don't feel guilty passing on that part of the information. The second thing that also everyone agrees to Is that only a small number of people who get this virus will even be in a serious medical condition? Does that mean you should be worried about it? You should do something different about it medically? Again, that's not what I'm. I'm not going to address that because I'm not a doctor and I don't know. But I'm just telling you the things that everyone does agree on from both the medical experts all the way down to just regular folks. And what it does seem like is that this is a very widespread and potentially bad case, but we've seen worse, of the flu, which does not mean to, to throw it away. The flu is nothing to, be, to joke about, especially for those people who are susceptible in the most serious way to, to, to the flu, elderly people for the most part. I mean, the, the biggest epicenter, again, this is a fact, the biggest epicenter of deaths in the United States from the coronavirus has been that nursing home in Washington State, which is so sad because, you know, basically this is the last place where you want to have this kind of infestation when you want to have the outbreak. And somebody came into that nursing home, I don't know who it was or, or why, and, and certainly I'm sure they didn't mean to, who had the symptoms, and or, or didn't have symptoms, but had the virus, I should say, and infected the people there who were not as well equipped to fight it. I do not believe this is the end of the world. Again, that's not, my, that's not a personal medical opinion. That is, that is based on the, the opinions of so many people who I respect and trust. And I also don't think that panic is going to get us anywhere. I think that right now what we're going to see is a lot of people who are going to get this virus, the overwhelming majority of which will not be under any serious health threat. It will be like a flu for them, some cases worse than others. And that doesn't mean you should not listen to the people you trust when it comes to medical advice. That's not what I'm saying. But right now, I do think that, for example, the financial markets are overreacting does that mean you should go and buy a bunch of stock tomorrow? I, no, I don't, I don't really feel comfortable giving that kind of advice either because I don't know, everyone listening, I don't know what your personal financial situation is. I do think that we're going to have some kind of a snapback in the markets in this when when this dies down, but it may take a while. And if you need money now or you can't spare money, I'm not going to tell you to buy now. We also have another thing going on right now, which is, a number of factories, especially in China, which is a huge user of crude oil and coal, have been shut down. Now, they're going to get back going soon, I think. But this has driven the price of oil down because they use oil and coal and these kinds of energy, and that kind of energy to, to run their economy. And that has driven the demand for oil down. And now there's a price war going on. OPEC wanted to respond to the reduction in demand by reducing supply. You've heard me talk a lot on the Malcolm Siegel Network. Whenever you're talking about the price of anything, especially a politician, whenever anyone is talking about the price of anything, and if it's a politician, they're, obviously they're, you're usually talking about complaining about the high price of something, and if they don't talk about it in the context of supply and demand, they are not worth listening to. So I'm going to try to be worth listening to by telling you we're seeing oil prices go down because not only is there reduced demand, but there is a perception in the oil market that demand will, will, go, will remain low in places like China, which is such a huge user of crude oil and coal, and in some other countries because some factories will shut down because of this virus. Again, I think they'll reopen relatively quickly, but that's what you're going to see. Again, it all depends on the country and some of the demographics. Some of you may have noticed that Italy has had a very high death rate and infection rate. Italy has one of the highest average ages in the world. These European western European countries and Italy is, you know, I guess officially southern European, but you understand what I'm saying, it's an EU country. Europe has had this demographic problem for years. They don't have high birth rates in these social democracies. They're not so completely socialist countries, but they're social democracies. In other words, they're welfare states. It's expensive to have a kid and be middle class. In countries like that, and so they've driven down their birth rates. They have very elderly populations in these countries, and Italy has an extremely elderly population compared to the rest of Europe, which is saying something because Europe has you know, countries like France and England are filled with a lot of elderly people, and that's why Italy is having such a hard time at such a high death rate. But as far as factories are concerned, I do think they will be reopening. But you have now an oil price war because OPEC tried to cut supply, and Russia, which is a quasi-partner of OPEC. It's called OPEC Plus. Russia is not officially an OPEC country, but they produce a lot of oil. And for many years now, they've been working in tandem with OPEC to try to manipulate oil prices. And Russia did not agree to the cut in supply for whatever reason. Maybe it was because Russia likes to cause mayhem. That's what they like to do. But that's what's roiling the markets now as of Monday, this huge drop in the price of oil. We're seeing prices of oil now back really close to 2009 levels when we hit an all-time low uh, inflation-adjusted uh, on U.S. crude oil prices at $29. The price I'm seeing now is $39, $32 a barrel. So, uh, One piece of advice I can tell you right now, if you've got like half a tank of gas right now, wait a couple more days to fill it because you're going to see some cheaper gas prices in three, four days if you can wait that long. Not that it's expensive now. But folks, all I can say is that, again, you don't have to be a doctor to know that panicking is, is not something people should do. I don't think we're going to see widespread death here of young people or people who otherwise didn't have underlying health issues or weren't already elderly. Not that those lives are any less valuable. I'm just talking about sheer numbers here. And I can tell you, even though I'm not a doctor, that panic is not the way to go. And I think that this will pass. This will pass. And we have to make sure that we don't make it worse than it has to be by turning against each other. And I'm not just talking about politically here. Let's just all try to think of ways to beat this and get through it and not frighten everyone, especially our children. I'm Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. I hope to speak to you again next week.